Our scripture from the, this morning is from the prophecy of Isaiah. We'll be reading from chapter 8, verses 19 to chapter 9, verse 2. And this is on page 670 of your Pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Isaiah 8, 19 to 9, 2. The darkness turns to light. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and look upward, will curse their king and their God. They will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Let's pray together. Lord, I must confess that sometimes I am overwhelmed by the darkness. I have fear and I look around the world and I, I can't get past it. And I know you have said that you are the light of this world. And my nature just seems to see the darkness. Yet I look around and I, I do see glimpses of your light. I see people serving others. I see people serving this body. I see people coming from faraway lands that this body has helped. And I'm reminded of your light. Lord, we crave that light. You said in such an amazing way that you are the light of the world. And Lord, we want to walk in your light. We do not want to be obsessed with the darkness. Lord, help us be people of light as you've called us to. Let us reflect your light into this dark world around us. Let us celebrate that light this Christmas season. Lord, we're reminded that this is the Sunday of hope. And in a curious way, your word through the book of Romans says that our hope is somehow tied to suffering. We wish that was not the case. But Lord, let us, through our suffering, have hope moments. Let us hope that your light, the light of the world, will pervade this planet and bring all that we need. Thank you, Jesus, for this time. And be with Pastor Yuri as he speaks uh, through you to us from this book of Isaiah with his many, many deep truths. Comfort his heart. Prepare his mind. Let us hear his word, your word. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen, and thank you, Neil, for your reading and for your prayer. 
One of the things that I've really been enjoying this morning as I've been singing is looking and seeing this beautiful Christmas decorations, the Christmas trees in front, and I just want to give, uh, I want to thank the, the, the team that worked so hard on Thursday night to, uh, to put out our Christmas decorations. Thank you so much. Well, last week, Pastor Mark introduced our Advent series, The Sovereign Goodness of God in the Coming of the Messiah. What does that mean, though, the sovereign goodness of God in the coming of the Messiah? Well, the simplest claim that this series title makes is that just by being born, Jesus shows that God is a good God. Just by being born, Jesus shows that God is a good God. But it's saying more than that. More than claiming that Jesus is proof that God is good, those first words of the title, the sovereign goodness of God, make a claim in themselves. That phrase implies that God's goodness orders and rules over the universe. That's what sovereign means. That not, no matter how chaotic things may appear to us, over everything, behind all of history, there is a purpose. And that purpose is something that we would call good. Something that we should all be able to recognize as good, as having our best interests in mind. And sovereign goodness, to be truly sovereign, oversees not just individual interests, but the flourishing of all of humanity. And more than that, a really sovereign goodness would not just oversee human flourishing, but point the entire universe towards satisfying and good ends. Implied by this title, the sovereign goodness of God in the coming of this Messiah, is that the birth of Jesus Christ is the event of history. A cosmic event, the event that changes everything. The event that should cause everyone to recognize that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, as James put it. Or, more simply, as Pastor Mark told us last week, because of Jesus, not only do we know that God exists, we know that God is good and that he is also great. So it's no wonder then that the Bible compares the coming of the Messiah to the beginning of creation. Let there be light, said God in the beginning. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. And the Gospel of John, echoing the words of Genesis, says of Jesus' birth, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. 
These are stirring words. The light shines in the darkness. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And it is stirring to hear these words because light for everyone is a universal symbol of hope. Why is light a universal symbol of hope? Well, everything that is alive depends on light. Even those strange creatures that live in the deepest, darkest depths of the sea, those fish that don't even have eyes to see, let alone appreciate the light, they depend on light to provide them with food, which sinks from organisms closer to the surface that benefit directly from light's energy, that benefit from the light's power to warm things up and to cause plants to grow. Light activates and nourishes life. That's just the beginning. On land, we usually think of light in more elevated terms than just providing the basics of life. When the light is shining, we can see what's around us. In the light of day, we make our way through the world more easily and safely. Light seems to make everything bigger. It informs our sense of sight with a barrage of information that helps us to discover the way that things connect. So light is a universal symbol of hope, not just because it supports the basics of life, but because it enables meaning. The image of a shaft of light streaming into a dark place is an image of knowledge displacing ignorance, of understanding old things in new ways. And even more than this, light is mysterious. We know it's there, but we can't quite decide what it is. Scientists don't know. Is it a wave? Is it a particle? Or both? And the way it reflects and pools and changes, depending on the time of day or the time of the seasons, takes our breath away. So light is a symbol of inspiration. Light is revelation that transforms the everyday. Light is insight that expels inertia and death. But because of all this, because light is a universal symbol of hope, from the beginning of time, people have been tempted to worship light itself. Instead of the one who spoke light into existence. People have been tempted to worship created things, the sun and the stars, rather than the one who made them. Now, today we're far too sophisticated to talk about worshiping things like the sun and the moon and the stars, but we still have the tendency to privilege those things that light is associated with. Light, life, right? And health, knowledge and discovery, freedom and equality, peace and prosperity, beauty, and inspiration. We've placed these things often far above the one who first made us aware that we should even consider those things important. And when it turns out, and it turns out that when we stop worshiping him, he can easily take them away. God is ultimately the only one who can actually sustain life and health Knowledge and discovery, freedom, inequality, peace and prosperity, beauty and inspiration. 
Now, if you've been paying attention to the cultural conversation around, you may have noticed that more and more people are discovering this, that people who until very recently considered themselves firm atheists or agnostics have been discovering that in the absence of the God of the Bible, the God who we killed, supposedly, according to Nietzsche, in the absence of this God, the things that we made priorities in the modern world, life and health, knowledge and discovery, freedom and equality, peace and prosperity, beauty and inspiration, well, these things we're finding at the beginning of the 21st century are now in short supply. Well, the Bible puts it very plainly. They worshipped the creature rather than the creator, with the result that their hearts became darkened. Now, ironically, the darker that our hearts become, the more we seem able to convince ourselves that we can be our own light source. But Jesus told his disciples that it's from within, from men's hearts. That's where evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly, these evils come from inside us. To suppose that by looking inside, you'll be able to find life and health, knowledge and discovery, freedom and equality, peace and prosperity, beauty and inspiration is then the height of delusion. Here's Jesus again. If the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If the light that's in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You will never be able to get out of that. The more we look to ourselves, the more we walk in darkness. Well, it's into just such a darkness that that famous Christmas verse at the end of the passage that Neil read for us tells us that God shines his light. Let's turn there now, page 670 in the Pew Bible. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. The darkness that this passage refers to is the darkness of human depravity, the rank dungeon of ignorance and sin. But the light... The light is the light of God. A light we could never manufacture or even begin to imagine apart from him. So before we go farther, it's important to remind ourselves of an important fact that's easy to forget in all the warm fuzziness of Christmas time. Not all light is the same kind of light. Not all light is the same quality of light. Not all light is light at all. This is especially true when we're talking about light as a symbol of hope. If we think we have a light that comes from within, it is, in fact, great darkness. And I asked Neil to read those verses that come before the famous verse that I just quoted, not only because thematically they obviously link up and lead into it, the darkness moving into light. 
but also because they demonstrate how important it is to go back to well-known passages like this one and read them in context. Because before speaking of the hope that came into the world, of the light that has dawned and the people of God having seen it, Isaiah has been at pains to remind us of the darkness of the human heart. This is indeed what Isaiah talks about for most of the book, the darkness of the human heart. And in the two chapters that build to this verse that we know and love, this verse when God's grace and mercy shine forth, Isaiah's intention has been to show us how, as people grow increasingly desperate to shed light into the darkness that they've made for themselves, they'll try almost anything. Mediums and spiritists. They'll seek light in what they know to be darkness. They'll seek the light and settle for a poor imitation even as they reject the only true light source. And as they do, they drive themselves deeper into darkness and despair. The end of chapter 8 of Isaiah, as you read it, is disorienting and fragmented. That's on purpose. It's a splintering kaleidoscope of light and shadow that reflects and refracts elements of the story that came before it. We're not going to go there, but I'll summarize. The story is about the spiritual darkness of a king in crisis who who heard what God said through Isaiah, but wouldn't take it to heart, wouldn't trust it, wouldn't trust him, wouldn't trust God to keep his promises. The king certainly heard what Isaiah said, but he preferred instead to trust to his own instincts, to trust his own experience, to trust his own learning, to trust his own light. And that light led him to put his trust in human power and insight instead of the God who created the world, instead of the God who upholds the world By the word of his power, as Hebrews says. The light that this king followed, his so-called inner light, would be the light that thrust his people into utter darkness. Now let's just take a minute to talk about this term, utter darkness. You'll sometimes hear people say that the writers of the Old Testament didn't have a concept of heaven and hell. But it's not true. It's a very old error, and we have Jesus himself to thank for correcting it. Since he was the one who publicly scorned the Sadducees for not believing in the resurrection of the dead, the continued life after death. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, Jesus said. Now, it's true that for the most part, the Old Testament talks about Sheol, or the grave, as the place that we go when we pass on. But there can be no doubt that at least some Old Testament writers, and most certainly Isaiah, who were shown something more about our eternal destiny. Isaiah very urgently wants to impress on us that there is something more than just dirt awaiting us when we die. 
For proof of that, you don't have to look any further than the well-known majestic soaring passages in Isaiah which without a doubt inspired the vision of heaven in the book of Revelation. We like those passages, and we don't have any problem thinking that Isaiah saw eternity, saw heaven. As for hell, if you read the very last verse of the book, you can't possibly miss the fact that Isaiah is warning us about it. In fact, Jesus, who is the person in the Bible who talked the most about hell, quotes that very verse of Isaiah when he refers to hell in the Gospel of Mark. Well, here at the end of chapter 8, Isaiah uses a term that should remind us of another of Jesus' descriptions of hell, the outer darkness. This word that Isaiah uses is very strong. And it often, though not always, refers to this kind of uncanny otherworldly darkness, a thick darkness, a darkness that you can feel in your bones. It's the same word that the prophet Zephaniah uses to describe the darkness of the day of wrath. So to me, it seems that in this climactic moment, when Isaiah is straining to describe the result of the spiritual darkness of those who trust to their own light, who end up cursing God, that Isaiah has in mind the same condition that Jesus described. An outer darkness, full of sorrow and anger. Hell, in other words. I know it's going to seem strange and unwelcome to mention hell in a Christmas sermon, especially to modern ears. But our ancestors certainly had no such quibbles. To check on this, all you need to do is flip through a collection of old Christmas carols, just as I did yesterday. The very first carol in the Oxford Book of Carols has this as its second stanza. Now mark the goodness of the Lord, which he for mankind bore. His mercy soon he did extend, lost man for to restore. And then, for to redeem our souls from death and hellish thrall, he said his own dear son should be the savior of us all. A couple pages later, it's the same story. The very beginning of this carol. A virgin most pure, as the prophets do tell, hath brought forth a baby, as it hath befell, to be our redeemer from death, hell, and sin, which Adam's transgression hath wrapped us in, and on and on. Of course, we don't like to talk about hell, especially at Christmas. But our ancestors understood that we need to talk about it, especially if we want to understand Christmas. Our passage, as I just explained, certainly hints at it. It's the very thing that bumps up against the people walking in darkness who've seen the great light. That is, it is the darkness. It is 
the shadow of death. Can you understand the miracle of the light if you won't mention the nature of the darkness from which you've been saved? Maybe that's the reason we often feel so unsatisfied with our Christmas celebrations. Maybe it stems from that very reluctance to acknowledge the punishment we deserve that's been removed. Maybe we're unable to recognize the greatness of the light and to be thankful for it since we resist plumbing the depths of the pit he has penetrated. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Who or what is this light? Who or what is this sun? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light, says Jesus. I am the light of the world. In that one single sentence, he makes a double claim. I am God. I am the I am. I am the one who is. I am the one who has been. I am the one who always will be. Plus, I am the light that you have been seeking the whole time you've been in darkness. I am the light you've rejected, which is the reason for your darkness. I am the light of the world. In that one brilliant sentence, he exposes the absurdity, the sheer silliness of our attraction to shiny things. Our worship of created things, our willful ignorance and lack of curiosity that fails to look beyond them, fails to recognize that something else, someone else, must have made them shine to begin with. In that one perplexing sentence, he makes things so much easier, and yet so much harder as well. Harder because in some ways it's easy to worship the sun and it's easy to promote all the things we associate with it. Life and health, knowledge and discovery, freedom and equality, peace and prosperity, beauty and inspiration. No one can fail to be dazzled by the sun. No one would argue that life, knowledge and inspiration are not worthy pursuits. Harder because to acknowledge that someone else made all these things and that it is right to worship him and not these other things means seeking something that we can't see. Someone who is not as obvious as the sun. Seeking the light of the world, seeking the source of the light means seeking one whose being is shrouded in brilliance whose immortality blinds mortal eyes. Nevertheless, Jesus reveals that he is this source, this same God, this I am, the very light of the world.
He is the revelation that transforms the everyday. He is the one who expels the darkness and kills death. How do we find him? The source of all light. God, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. Made his light shine in our hearts. Why? To give us the light. What kind of light? The light of the knowledge. What kind of knowledge? The knowledge of the glory of God. And how did he do this? In the face of Christ. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He made his light shine in our hearts. Light, in other words, is not something you seek. Light is given. We know this. All you have to do is open your eyes. All you have to do is not turn away from it. Not turn away from him. All you have to do is to look, to gaze intently in his word and in worship on the face of Jesus Christ. In the light of his face, we begin to see all things clearly. And that includes, as Neil was praying before, a clearer idea of the darkness. When we were walking in darkness, we got used to it. We got comfortable in it. But when the light dawned, we could suddenly see the darkness yawning before us, its perils thrown into terrifying relief. Sometimes when we begin to see clearly, we perceive more darkness than light. We look around at the situations and at all the people in our lives who threaten to drag us back into the darkness. But we don't need to despair. If we're Christians, we can remind ourselves that it is because of the light shining in the darkness that we can see that darkness more vividly. And we can pray that that fear will turn into longing for more light. For more of that face who will make the darkness disappear. We can pray that he will save us. Pray that he will draw us through the darkness. Pray that he will inspire and inform us how to join with others who are working in hope. To make things better. To meet those night terrors head on. To courageously suggest to even the worst monsters that they should simply open their eyes. But maybe you find yourself distressed by the darkness you see around you, but still you're unmoved by Jesus. What can he do? Unimpressed by all this talk of him as the true source of light, as the light of the world. 
Or you find the suggestion to just open your eyes, a nice image, a nice idea, but kind of naive, kind of soft, kind of irritating in that it seems so unproductive. In that case, you may actually be in danger. If you're done with waiting for some light from heaven to dawn, if at Christmas you'd rather think about hope and light, it's things that you can bring about through your thoughts and your actions, not as a person who is light and hope in his very being, who rules in goodness and whose goodness rules the universe. You may not know him yet in a saving way as your Lord. If you prefer to look for light in the world, for light you can see, light you can control, instead of turning towards the one who called himself the light of the world, you may still be in the darkness. His light is all around you, but you are in darkness. Like the fish at the bottom of the ocean, where light doesn't penetrate, you benefit passively from his provision. You swim in his warmth. You're affected by the currents that he causes to swirl around you. Whatever accurate knowledge you have about the universe is only what he has enabled you to perceive. When you are caught up in the beauty of a moment, it is his inspiration you feel. But you don't acknowledge it. I'm sorry to tell you that if you don't turn to him, to Jesus, to the source, you will work all your life for that health, knowledge, freedom, peace, prosperity, and beauty that you crave. Only to discover that even if you find some of it apart from him, it will one day slip through your fingers. As you're thrust into the utter darkness in death, it will be Isaiah's words of warning that ring in your ears, not the nice words, not the famous words, the Christmas words about light dawning in the land of the shadow. For those who walk in darkness only see the great light shining when they look into his face, the face of Jesus the light of the world. This Christmas, are you looking for light? Are you looking for Jesus? Talk to somebody. Talk to, talk to me or someone else who knows him if you are. If you're someone who's already found him, are, are you gazing at him this Christmas? Are you going to celebrate his coming according to the kind of light that he provides? Because even Christians at Christmas find it easy to get caught up in the tangle of lights. The fake lights that can displace Jesus, the light of the world. The celebration of Jesus' birth can become for us an expression not of God's sovereignty, but of ours. How do we react when things go wrong at this time of year? Not of God's goodness to us, 
but of our disregard of him. Remember that true Christmas light is a miraculous light. A strange light, a foreign light, an unexpected light, or maybe better to say a startling light, unexpected in that it's the last thing you expected, not that you didn't, weren't looking for light. Because this is the light of a squawking baby born into poverty, who came to die a humiliating death ordinarily reserved for slaves and rebels. So Christmas light True Christmas light is light that seems powerless. That seems to our jaded eyes more like darkness than light. But it is the light that pierces the darkness of our hearts. We cannot see the true Christmas light. It can seem a far cry from the dawning of a great light on those walking in darkness. But this Advent, as you wait to celebrate the Messiah's coming, remember that this unlikeliest of lights is the proof that God, in his goodness, overrules the world. Let's pray together. We praise you. Light of the world who came into our darkness, who dispels and expels our darkness, who kills death for coming. Open eyes that are blind. Cause us to gaze into your face. In your name we pray. Amen. As a word of blessing, I want to read just a little bit more of Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Go in the grace of this child, this Prince of Peace.